Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Wednesday, February 9th, and you're tuned into the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. I'm Joe Noga, joined by Paul Hoynes. Hoynesy, uh, we we didn't get a, a break in the negotiations or anything like that, but yesterday uh, we got an email from the Baseball Writers Amer- uh, Association of America asking for uh, updates on our vaccine statuses in, in anticipation and in hopes of uh, reporters being allowed back in the clubhouse in 2022. Uh, I guess it was uh, sort of emphasized that this is pending approval by the Players Association, but it's uh, it's something that we as reporters have been really, you know, sort of looking forward to and hoping for, uh, and it's, uh, it's a real possibility now uh, going forward once the season does get started. Yeah, uh, the BBWA, Joe, has been banging on the door for this for a while, you know, all through uh, this past season and uh hopefully this comes to fruition it not only makes our job easier but i think it it would benefit the readers our subscribers uh, gives us access to more players you know we would be allowed back in the clubhouse before and after games you know and uh, it would be the first time since you know spring training of 2020 that we've been allowed in in a, a big league locker room and that was just before the pandemic shut things down, you know, for good on March 12th. Right. And we, we've been without that access. And since then, uh, it's been a lot of Zoom calls and availability dictated primarily by the clubs itself and who was available and, and who's been made available to us. But, you know, giving reporters access, not just on the field before games, but in the clubhouse where, you know, the players have to be there at, at, at some point before they go out to the field. Uh, it, it lets us pursue different story angles and not all the same story angles as, you know, everybody's getting the same access. This is, you know, different reporters can talk to different guys and, uh, it, you know, you might find things out that you wouldn't normally find out on a Zoom call or were uh, a, not afraid to ask, but just you don't want to ask uh, on a Zoom call it, that everybody's going to find out at once. Yeah, that's a great point, Joe. I mean, we've kind of had uh, cookie cutter reporting, you know, for the most part, you know, post game, pre game stuff. Uh, you know, everybody gets the same thing. And, you know, th- while, you know, I understand the clubs are t- doing the best they could, uh, especially, uh, you know, Cleveland, the Guardians, I thought did a great job, you know, the last year and a half. 
through the last two seasons, really given us as much access as they could. But, you know, if you're a reporter, you don't want to report the same thing as your com competition is reporting. So right. you, you try to look for a different angle and, and hopefully this uh, opens the door to that. And, uh, but most of all, hopefully at least, you know, this is maybe, maybe a, a little bit a breadcrumb that leads to uh, 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 you know, an agreement between the players and, uh, and owners and, and gets uh, baseball back on track here. Yeah. To be clear, this, this has to be agreed upon uh, in, in the negotiations. So as long as there's a stalemate there, 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 there will be no access uh, granted to uh, reporters like us, but uh, you know, as soon as that comes through and hopefully it does come through, we'll uh, we'll be able to, to provide that service. Uh, and it also enhances things for our subtext subscribers, because how many times have we sent subtext messages, you know, from within the clubhouse or uh, as soon as we got back from the clubhouse about things that, you know, even the, the TV or, uh, you know, other reporters couldn't couldn't get out on the broadcast, you know, uh, ahead of time. We, we've been there with that. So. Uh, again, just a, an advantage to anybody who subscribes via subtext for $3.99 a month. Uh, throw a quick plug in there, 298, uh, 216-298-4346 if you want to sign up, uh, get it, get in front of everybody uh, for the season with the Guardians. Uh, big news, I guess, I guess big news out of California and Los Angeles, uh, ex-Indians uh, pitcher Trevor Bauer uh, will not face criminal charges in his, uh, I, I guess, in the situation where he was accused of uh, assaulting uh, a female out there in, in Los Angeles on, on more than one occasion. Uh, Bauer basically missed the second half of the season last year, most uh, a large part, portion of the season last year uh, while he was on indefinite leave from the Dodgers, uh, still making uh, his salary. Uh, he, he still hasn't faced the music from, uh, the league per se, but I got to believe that having missed as much time as he did, uh, regardless of what the league comes back with in terms of punishment, uh, there, there's going to be some sort of a, a amount of time served, you know, with that uh, factored into whatever suspension he might face. Yeah. I, I mean, this has happened before in baseball where, you know, no charges have been filed against the player in, you know, kind of a sexual abuse or domestic abuse charges. And uh, the league is, is still suspended the player. Um, so, uh, you know, that's the next step for, uh, for Bauer, for Trevor Bauer. And, uh, you know, I'm sure he's, uh, you know, relieved. This is the second time that, you know, no charges were filed against him. So he's out of the Fed, you know, he's out of the court of law. And now he's in the court of baseball. And uh, we'll see where that takes him. And in the in the court of public opinion, he continues to to sort of wage his war, his own personal war against basically anybody who will step to him. Uh, he's he's put out videos uh, trying to explain things, and uh, I just think every time he does something like that, it's 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 it continues to just be a bad look for him. But in Trevor's mind, he's winning. He's he's winning all over the place with this, uh, and and that just you know that's just who he is. It's going to be interesting to see just what happens between him and the Dodgers. You know, they have basically, you know, three one-year contracts, uh, you know, with them. You know, he has an out, an opt-out in uh, in each of those in each of those uh, years in his contract. And uh, 
I don't know, you know, and I, I wonder, you know, what is his future? You know, who, if even, you know, if he, let's say MLB suspends him for X amount of games, uh, even after that, does he go back to the Dodgers? Do, uh, do they part company and where does he pitch next? And so there's still a lot of questions left for Trevor Bauer and, uh, you know, we'll see, we'll see where the road takes him. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that there's much of a doubt that he will pitch again in the major leagues. Uh, I think when he does pitch again in the major leagues, there will probably be some sort of protests, uh, you know, thrown up by uh, groups. Uh, It's, it it will be interesting to see how that develops uh, as far as what teams might be interested in taking him off the Dodgers hands. Uh, that that's got to be a relatively small group of teams that would be able to absorb, you know, a 40 plus million dollar uh, contract. If, if that's, if that's even available, if he, if he has, a, you know, no trade clauses or anything like that. Yeah. And, you know, you still have to deal with the public. You have to be able to sell that to your, your fans, your ticket, you know, your season ticket holders, you know, so, you know, it's still, there's still a process going on here. And, uh, you know, we'll see how it unravels. All right. Uh, speaking of contracts, uh, one of our favorite guys, Bud Black, uh, got a contract extension as the manager in Colorado. Uh, he's going to be uh, there, I, I believe, through tw- uh, 2023 uh, was the extension. Uh, so this is, a, this is a contemporary of uh, Terry Francona. This is, uh, you know, they were teammates in, in Cleveland. And these are, you know, guys that, that know each other real well. Uh, you know, Bud Black's uh, just really an interesting guy. And he, he's been in Colorado. You realize how long he's been in Colorado. He's been there for a while. Yeah, he's, he's managed there. He managed in San Diego. You know, he was uh, won a World Series as a pitching coach for, for the Angels. Uh, you know, he, I th- he was former pitching coach in, in uh, the AAA for AAA and with the Indians when they were the Indians. So, you know, he's, he's had a long association in Cleveland. He pitched for them. He, you know, was a front off, you know, he worked in the, as a, you know, as a, you know, special assistant to uh, I believe Mark Shapiro and he, you know, obviously coached. So uh, just a good guy and uh, kind of an underrated manager. And, you know, he's found a way to, you know, you know he's got the, what the Rockies in back. He, he, he got them into the postseason, you know, in back-to-back years. For, and that's the only he's the only Colorado manager who's done that with the Rockies. And that's, you know, as we all know, that's a tough place to manage, a tough place to play. But he's he's kind of, uh, you know, put together a good rotation and a rotation that can pitch at altitude. And, you know, that's that's something that's that's something people said could never be done. Yeah, it's a, you got to really dig deep into the uh, into the analytics to, to try and find guys whose whose profiles and and you know, games match what they need out there in Colorado, just, just playing in that unique situation. All right. Uh, let's get to our uh, top 25 most memorable Cleveland baseball players of the last 38 years uh, as, as Quincy has covered them uh, here on cleveland.com. Uh, today's, uh, you know, I'm going to go a little easier with the, with the blind reveal uh, today, just um, uh, just because of the nature of the uh, the individual uh, appeared in games, uh, I'm, I'm assuming 
He appeared in games from 1989 to 92 with the Indians at a 16 and 19 record and a 310 ERA. Uh, he saved 48 games, had 173 strikeouts. Uh, and when he uh, appeared in games, when he would walk out, his, uh, his, his warm-up music was a yellow submarine. Uh, and, and that should give you a pretty good indication of, uh, of who it is. Uh, Hoinsey, who are we talking about? It's got to be Steve Olin, Joe. Uh, one of my favorites. The, you know, the yellow submarine, I had forgotten about that. You know, because he was a submariner, he kind of threw threw down from down under a right-hander. So that made sense to play the Beatles' uh, "Yellow Submarine" for his his walk-up music. Right, and you know, I, anybody who was following the Indians and uh, sort of a fan back when I was in high school, uh, they they sort of modeled. Uh, everybody wanted to throw like Steve Olin, and just the uniqueness of having a an effective submariner uh, at, at that time. Uh, and, and just the, the way, I guess, when I was learning how to play baseball, I, I found that I could throw me, I had a little more command over a sidearm pitch than I did over just an over the top fastball. I could throw that for strikes a little bit better. So uh, Steve Olin sort of inspired me to do that, you know, throw from a little bit more of a sidearm angle than, uh, than over the top. Uh, but as far as the, you know, what he's meant to the Indians and the, the organization, uh, it was the, the lasting memory is what we have of him from 1993, uh, tragically uh, dying in a boating accident with Tim Cruz and Bobby Ojeda uh, during spring training. Let's, let's first talk about that and, and, and the reaction to that, and then we'll get into a little bit more of who, who he was as a player. Yeah, you know, that, that was uh, March 22nd, 1993. You know, it's a date that, you know, in, Indians baseball fans, Cleveland baseball fans will never forget. Uh, it's a date I'll never forget. Um, they, they were having a, uh, it was the only off day of spring training of, the spring, of that spring. Uh, you know, the Indians had uh, moved from Tucson to, uh, to uh, Winter Haven. This was the first year in Winter Haven. And uh, Tim Cruz was new to the ball club. He had a ranch, you know, about 40 miles, you know, north of uh, Winter Haven. And they had a, you know, a team party. And I think Olin and uh, Olin and his family, his wife, Patty, and his kids, and uh, uh, Fernando Montez, the strength coach, and just a couple other guys went because most of everybody else was went to Orlando to go to Disneyland. And uh, mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and that, that it's such a tragic thing that, um, you know, that they uh, halfway there, they got lost. The, the Olin family got lost. Uh, Patty Olin, you know, said, Let, let's turn around. You know, this is, you know, we're, we're never going to find this place. But uh, Steve wanted to keep going uh, because he had promised one of his little girls that they could go horseback riding on the ranch. And, uh, you know, they finally made it. And, uh you know, unfortunately, they, you know, Cruz, Olin, and and uh, and Bobby Ojeda were out on what you know took they went Cruz took them out on on Little Lake Nilly, mm-hmm. and uh, it was getting dark, and uh, they somebody on the shore flashed a light for them to come back and pick something up, and uh, when they did so, you know, they they gunned the boat and ran into a dock and um, and. Um, really hit at full speed and, uh, you know, 
Olin died immediately on the scene. Uh, Tim Cruz was, you know, life flighted to or uh, Orlando and died the next day. Uh, Bobby Ojeda, you know, was sitting in the back and kind of slouched down. The, the accident basically scalped him. And, uh, you know, he recovered and, and, and returned to like mid-season. He pitched, he, he continued to pitch for the Indians, but it was just a, just a terrible, terrible uh, accident, terrible day for the Indians and a terrible day for baseball. Just, you know, I just, uh, you know, just really you, you hate thinking about it. It's just, just a bad thing. Yeah, they were the first active players uh, at the time, they were the first active players since Thurman Munson uh, to, to die, you know, not necessarily related to on the field, but, you know, they were just active baseball players who died like that. And it was, uh, you know, a, a little gap between Thurman Munson dying in a plane crash and, uh, you know, Tim Cruz and Steve Olin dying in the, uh, the accident on uh, Little Lake Nelly. Uh, what was, where were you and what, when did you get the news and how did you, how did you approach covering the story when you first uh, learned about the tragedy? Yeah, I, I was uh, in, at my apartment. My my dad, my uncle had come down for spring training. And uh, this was, you know, I was at my apartment. Uh, <clears throat> I finished writing for the day and, um, you know, saw something, <coughs> excuse me, on, on ESPN. That was in early days of ESPN. And they said there was a boating accident you know, involving the Cleveland Indians and a bunch of, uh, a bunch of the players and Bobby DiBiasio were staying at the same old, same apartment complex I was staying at. So I went down, you know, I was talking to those guys and, uh, you know, they, but I couldn't get it. Nobody would say anything, you know, they were really tight lipped about it. And then, uh, you know, I saw, you know, I was, you know, I called work. I was, you know, kind of picking up, you know, bits and pieces of what happened. And, uh, you know, I finally, um, you know, I put, you know, I, I, I was talking to, uh, you know, I called the city desk and I was just kind of basically, you know, uh, uh, you know, dictating to them, you know, because uh, it was really, I'd, I've never covered a story like that. And I, you know, I would go downstairs, find out something, come back and, you know, dictate a little more. And then, you know, I finally, you know, I got that story in the lead story. And then I went out, uh, you know, I asked my uncle, uh, I remember we, we had a map. I didn't know this Claremont, that's where the city right. was. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I asked him, hey, how do I get here? And so he, you know, he said, oh, you go up here and there, you know. And and uh, so I, I drove up there and I was driving around. I don't know how I found it, but I pulled into this, this uh, parking lot, kind of a like, you know, it was just a driveway and there was a cop car there. There was a TV camera there the boat had been pulled out of the water and I walked out on this dock where the, the dock they ran into. And it was like, this dock was like a, a ocean, an ocean sized dock. It was, it wasn't like for a little lake. The lake was like a, the, the size of a mud puddle, basically. So, this, dock, this dock was huge and you could it was see. more of a pier? Yeah, it was more of a pier. Yeah. And I, and I got to the end of it and you could see the path the boat had taken through the, through the seaweed around the, you know, around the dock, it was a, like an opening in the seaweed where, where it had hit. And uh, then I went to the hospital. I went to where, oh man, I think where Cruz was. And, uh, you know, but uh, it was, then I remember going back the next day, you know, the going back to uh, Winter Haven and, 
you know, the, by that time, the national writers were coming in, they had heard, and we were sitting in the parking lot behind the clubhouse and they started taking boxes out. And one of the guys, Murray Chass from, uh, the, from the New York times said, I, you know, that's, uh, I bet that's what, uh, you know, that was their equipment. That's, that's their equipment that they're taking out of the clubhouse. And, right. and he was right. So it was, it was just an eerie, it just was like two weeks of nonstop writing. You know, it was just crazy. What was uh, Mike Hargrove's reaction and what did you think of the way that he handled things and got the team through, you know, just, just, you know, getting back to baseball after losing, you know, two, essentially three of your teammates in, in one night. Yeah, he was, he was great. Grover was, you know, he was kind of a, a pillar of strength. I thought the whole organization really kind of rallied, rallied together. Uh, they really kind of propped each other up. I don't think they practiced for three, four, five days, you know, just to give the team uh, a chance to settle in. Carlos Baerga came in and talked to, uh, talked to reporters, uh, the bullpen guys, uh, Lilliquist, Ted Power, Kevin Wickhander came in and talked to us. Uh, even Patty Olin came in and, 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 and talked to us. And it was just, they, they really handled it well. You know, they really, but Grover, you know, and then Sharon Hargrove, I thought were kind of the, you know, really the kind of the, held the whole organization together. So what kind of guy did Indians fans and the organization lose when they lost Steve Olin to this, to this tragedy? I mean, he was sort of on that upward trajectory after that 92 season, he had sort of established himself as maybe an option as a, as the closer for that team. And, you know, this was a guy who was, was looking like he was going to be uh, a solid major league reliever, maybe, you know, frontline closer uh, for a team that was eventually going to go on and do, do pretty big things. Yeah, definitely. He, you know, he was, uh, you know, kind of a, a 16th round pick in 1987, not a real high profile guy, but he came, he worked his way through the minors, um, you know, and, and, when he came on in his last season, Joe, in 1992, you know, Doug Jones had kind of been phased out of the closer, closer's role. And that, the role, you know, his, the, really the job was his, you know, he was emerging as that closer. He was kind of a Dan Quisenberry type guy, you know, that, that from Kansas city that threw down under, I uh, had some problems against lefties, but uh, just a solid guy. And he was, he was a fun guy. He was a fun guy to be around. I used to do this, uh, this thing after every game, thumbs up and thumbs down, like thumbs up to the guys that played well, thumbs down to the guys that didn't. And, you know, it guys caused a little friction wow. in the clubhouse, but Olin loved that stuff. And as soon as I walked in the clubhouse, he'd go, who got, who got the thumbs got up the and thumbs who got down. the thumbs down? He would like give me the high sign, you know, and I'd have to go over and tell him. <laughs> but uh, and Roy Hewitt, when Roy Hewitt became the sports editor, he said, you, you should, I don't think you should be, you should keep doing that. So yeah, that got me well, off the hook with that. You were like the, you were the precursor to the Facebook likes. That was, uh, that was everybody's thumbs up, thumbs down. There you go. Uh, <laughs> what was his personality like? Obviously he was a family guy. He was, he was on that trip with his, his, his wife and his kids. Uh, you know, it, it strikes me as sort of a, just a, a good all-around guy, not, you know, like the, the flamboyant, loud, whatever, but what was his presence like in the clubhouse? Yeah, he was, he was an unassuming guy. He, you know, he's from uh, 
Portland, Oregon. Uh, just, uh, this is a solid guy. He was a great guy to talk to. You know, he was always, uh, you know, he's always trying to get better. Um, he, uh, you know, he, you know, and, uh, you know, he, you know, he knew his shortcomings and, but, you know, that really he had a lot of confidence in himself because he was only thrown 85 to probably 88 miles an hour. Uh, you know, he had some problems with lefties, but, uh, you know, he's really, really confident on the mound. Uh, and, uh, just, uh, just really a good guy. I just, I really like talking to him. He was one of my favorite, favorite players on that team. He there was, was a, just, a story about him, how he, uh, he, he had an arrow, uh, that he drew underneath the, uh, on the, the bill of his oh, cap, yeah. uh, underneath the, the bill of his cap. And, uh, you know, I think, uh, it wasn't until after the, 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 the tragedy happened that that story sort of became widely known and, and public and fans. And I'll tell you what, I had an Indian's cap. I was 16, 17 years old. Uh, I took a Sharpie marker and I put a, a an arrow <laughs> underneath the, the front of the bill of my cap uh, on my, that was, that's what you did back then. You, <laughs> you sort of picked up on it. Uh, what, what did you know about that? That, that story? Yeah, that, that was to t get him to throw strikes to, Tell him the what direction home plate was, and uh, you know to 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 throw to throw strikes, and uh, you know that was the that's what the arrow meant. I think that's what he told me at least. But did that come from a coach, or did that come from him, or, or what? I think it just came from him. And then all those guys, all the guys in the bullpen, did the same thing. You know, they because they were they were really that was a close group. And uh, you know, after you know Steve died, they uh, you know for a while at least they kept. You know, wherever they, they kept an open locker, his locker in the clubhouse, hung his jersey in there. And uh, on the road, they even did it until, you know, Kevin Wickhander was real tight with them. And uh, Kevin kind of went over the edge. I mean, they kind of, they traded him eventually because, you know, he, I think he just got, you know, he was so overwhelmed with grief about it that he really never got over it until, and they thought, well, I, uh, you know, they thought maybe if we trade him, he'll he'll get a fresh start with with a new team. And and uh, I don't know if that ever worked for Kevin, but he, he Kevin Wickander was another story. Yeah, we can get into him as uh, as we get deeper into these top twenty five. Uh, last thing, uh, you know, when uh, you know Olin didn't get to experience that that great run that the Indians had in the the mid to late nineties, he was sort of the the setup to that, uh, and then and then he was lost beforehand. Uh, but when uh, Cleveland clinched its first uh, playoff appearance in what forty years, uh, Jim Tomey, every everybody remembers catching the the pop fly against uh, uh, the Royals in that game, and the celebration that followed. Uh, the one of the songs that was played over the PA uh, during the celebration, you you had you know, all sorts of, you know, soundtrack memories and all that. But uh, Mike Hargrove had specifically asked the, the PA announcers to play uh, the dance by Garth Brooks. And that was a favorite song of Steve Olin's. And I guess anybody from that 93 squad that was on the, the field at the time sort of heard that and, and got a little choked up. But uh, you, you remember that happening? Yeah, I remember that, uh, Joe. They, they went out. Uh, to uh, after you know they clinched, they went out. God, I think it was they went out and uh, raised the banner, you know, raised the AL Central banner in center field, and that's mm -hmm. when they played the song. The whole team went out there, 
and he played the dance and uh you know and uh, i don't know if i i don't know if i caught the significance of it but you know obviously when we went down you know grover was talking about it but yeah yeah i remember that yeah you not a big garth brooks fan at the time well oh, I, I like garth brooks but i <laughs> i i don't know if i could even hear it I, i'm not sure but but i know you know it was it was pretty it, it, it tugged at the heartstrings because everyone knew what it meant because they played the same song at Olin's funeral. Right. Got it. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up uh, today's edition of the Cleveland Baseball Talk podcast. Uh, not, not really fun looking back at, at that, but definitely great memories of Steve Olin and, and who he was and what he meant to the organization and, and really what he sort of inspired uh, to, to sort of, you know, continue to happen since his, his tragic death. Uh, and and just the ability to, to be around him for the, the short time that we were. Uh, Hoinsey will be back again tomorrow to wrap up the week uh, here on the, on the podcast. We'll talk to you then. All right, Joe.